0: I don't know about you, there's not many messages that I'm willing to die for, but as we look at the words of Jesus, these were the words he preached that he was willing to die for. So this is big stuff, and I'm not trying to oversell it. It really is. The words of Jesus are is a big deal. And so last week, Gary did a fantastic job, fantastic job. You got me mean appreciate Gary? Yeah, show me love. Gary did a fantastic job. He pointed us to Jesus, okay? He pointed us to Jesus having faith like a child. And he wanted us to have childlike faith, not, you know, immature or or childish faith. That's what he said. And remember, he said this, uh, childlike faith looks like this, humbly being reliant on God, humbly being teachable, and being humbly filled with the expressed regular uh, actions of gratitude. That's my interpretation. He probably said it better. Those are the things that, we looked at last week as we looked at that passage of Jesus said, hey, hey, don't, don't stop the little ones from coming for me. And, and by the way, <laughs> you need to be like a child if you want to inherit the kingdom. So thank you, Gary, for taking the time to share what God has been teaching you through Jesus' words written in red. And um, just been so blessed by both Gary and both by Todd. And so hopefully this isn't the last time we get to hear people uh, other than myself speak. It is a breath of fresh air. It's at least a breath of fresh air to me. Now, uh, I'm no sociologist, as most of you know, uh, but I would imagine that most people, taking a wild guess here, whether or not you consider yourself someone who follows Jesus, most people want to give their time, their energy, and resources to things that matter. And throughout history, even today, the pervasive philosophy for Making the most out of your life. You, you might have heard of this phrase. Is if you want to make the, the most out of your life, you got to grab the bull by its what? Horns, horns right? Not, not everyone finds deep imagery in cowboy imagery. Uh, deep meaning in cowboy imagery as motivations for pursuing a deep life of meaning. But whether you find yourself saying things like, you know, you got to just grab the bull by the horns, grab life by the horns, or you say things like... Girlfriend, you got to be the queen of your life. Uh, okay, I didn't do that really well. That's that was my best impression. Or uh, maybe you say things like this, or have you heard things like this. You know, hey, if you want, if you want to, if you want to accomplish things that matter in life, you've got to learn to become the master of your fate. And some people would be even uh, daring to say, you've got to be the savior of your own life. Whether. Those are the things you say. Really, no matter what you say, the message is kind of still the same throughout all of history. That if you want to make the most out of your life, then you gotta, you got to take, what, control of your life. Have you ever heard that? Right? Like, hey, hey, stop. stop letting your situations control You, you, stop letting your emotions control you. And it's helpful, but as a general philosophy for life, for living the kind of life that matters the most. I don't know. I just don't think that's a good enough. A good enough way. And while that kind of thinking may be helpful, I'll be honest, uh, some people that, that is helpful. They they are prone to laziness. And so the idea of, like, taking control of your life, and some of you are thinking of people that, right, and you're like, well, you know, I know some people that can just at least try to take some control of their life because they're a little, right, so while that might help people who are lazy or maybe uh, people who are, are or maybe just, they, they live their life by their emotions, right, you know those people, and you just want to, like, smack them in the face, like, it's going to be okay. Psh, psh, get a grip of yourself. What do you want? What do you want? I don't know. What do you want? Okay, that's the notebook, if anybody knows. What do you want? I don't know. You know, that kind of thinking helps take control of your life. But the truth is that we're all pretty lousy, if we're honest, at being a cowboy that grabs life by the horns. On top of that, we're often really lousy at having our best interests in mind. You've heard me say this before. Think about it. Have you ever done something that you knew Wasn't good for you? Like, have you ever knowingly did something that you knew was not good for you? And I don't know what your answer to that question says about you, but the answer to that question reveals that I'm not really good at becoming the master of my own fate, and I'm certainly unqualified to be my own savior. Now, before we jump into looking at what Jesus says is relevant to pursuing a life that matters, I just want to admit that if you're someone who hasn't figured out if you believe everything about Jesus and the Bible, then the idea of Jesus being the sole holder of the keys to unlocking true happiness in life may seem narrow-minded. In fact, if you're a follower of Jesus, you've heard some of your friends maybe that are far from you, that just seems too narrow-minded. I mean, that just seems narrow-minded. Like, Jesus, really? He's the holder of the keys to true meaning in life. I understand that. I just want to admit that. I also understand that as one theologian and Bible scholar puts in his book called The King Jesus Gospel, by the way, I totally recommend this book called The King Jesus Gospel, If you're someone who primarily views a religious and spiritual relationship with God as simply, quote, trusting some arrangement for sin remission set up through Jesus, trusting only his role as guilt remover, if that's the way you kind of view religion and you view this this idea of religion, then you will be tempted to misunderstand Jesus' words as being oversimplistic and unrealistic. I, I just want to let you know, like if, if that's the way you see Jesus and you see this idea of following Christ as just some type of deal for getting rid of the guilt and for maybe getting the bad things you've done forgiven so you can kind of go to a place where you get a harp and some wings and maybe an adult-sized diaper and flying through the air, you know, shooting people with air hose I don't know whatever your view of heaven is like then the words of Jesus will sound oversimplistic and maybe even unrealistic. And while we're being honest with each other, uh, you and I both know that we are surrounded by a world that's desperately trying to tell us and maybe more accurately sell us what we should value as meaningful. Think about it. We have a world around us dying to tell you what's valuable it's trying to sell you what's valuable and what's meaningful it's so funny cuz i even listen to marketing ads today and i like it sound like christian church ads from like the early 2000s like come and you know join this thing, we're family and and like I'm like, what happened here? And so they're take, they've almost like taken advantage of this language, and why? because they're trying to sell us and trying to tell us what is meaningful of life. and if you listen long enough, you'll find that the options and the standards that this world gives regarding pursuing a meaningful life are often varied, aren't they? and sometimes they're often contradictory so then why entertain what Jesus has to say? Like, why? Well, it has to go back to your honest answer to the question. Have you ever done something that you knew wasn't good for you? If you don't even have your best interest in mind, then maybe it's worth considering that there's someone who does. That maybe there is a creator of the universe who knows you, and is so willing to see you choose the best for your life that he was willing to send his only son, Jesus, so that you would understand with clarity who God is and the wonderful plan he has for your life. And if you've ever wondered if there is more to life than chasing your own pursuits or the pursuits of others and the world around you that's trying to convince you it's worth giving your time, energy, and resources, then listen. What Jesus has to offer can be good news. So, that was my intro. Do you want to hear some good news today? Yeah. I hope you do. Near the end of probably the greatest sermon ever preached, next to you, Todd and Gary, Jesus taught this in Matthew chapter 7. Would you look at this with me? Verses. 7 through 11, says this, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you, for everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Who among you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a Stone. Or if we ask for a fish, we'll give him a snake. if you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father in heaven give good gifts, good give things to those who ask him? You know, in my home, there are children if you didn't know, I have children. Uh, there are children. Uh, And if you have a home with children, inevitably, there will be a question that gets asked. Inevitably, a question will be asked. Mom, Dad, can I have a snack? Right? If your kids aren't old enough to talk yet, they, ah, (laughs) ah. You know what that means, can I have a snack? That also means I'm thirsty, also means I need to go to the bathroom, also means pick me up. Ah, right? So all that stuff. And if it's an appropriate time for a snack... A good parent will say, sure. What do you want? What do you want? A more seasoned parent knows not to leave the door open and will say things, sure, you can have insert healthy snack option here. If y'all didn't know that, I just gave you a little tip, a little parenting tip, okay? So don't open the door because cookies and crackers and chips will always be their first choice. (laughs) And then... There is the lazy parent who says, what I usually say, I don't know, ask your mother. <laughs> now, this is not a message about how parents are supposed to manage their children's snack time or where their children should be given snack time at all. Uh, the point is this. Good parents don't give things to their kids that bring them more harm than good. Like, we get that. Like, I, I, and I'm not talking, some of you are already like, well, my parents gave me a lot of harm. I was like, like, let's just agree on the principle that good parents bring their kids good, not harm. Can we agree on that? Amen. Yeah. So, Jesus wants you to know that God is better than a good parent. He wants you to know that God is trustworthy, that He is sovereign. That it is able to have your best interest in mind. This is why Jesus said this earlier in his message. If you want to flip back, take a look at Matthew chapter 6. It's just right here, verses 25 to 32. Jesus says this. You might have heard this already, but it's so good. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? Consider the birds in the sky. They don't sow or reap or gather in the barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you worth more than they Can any of you add one moment to his lifespan by worrying? The answer is no. And why do you worry about clothes? Observe how the wildflowers of the field grow. They don't labor or spin thread. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was adorned like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and then thrown in the furnace tomorrow, won't he do much more for you? You of little faith. So don't worry, saying, what will we eat, what will we drink, what will we wear? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you know. He knows that you need them. I love this because Jesus tells us that God, one of the reasons why God can be trusted is that he actually knows what we need. You ever been frustrated at someone or you try to tell them something you need, like, what do you want? You're like, I need this, like, and they hand you something, and it's like, that's not what I need, right? And, and then you're like, I'll just do it what? Myself. You ever ask, right? And sometimes I think people in life, they get so frustrated with God, and they live life so alone, and they try to do things in their own power because they don't trust God. But Jesus is God can be trusted. And what does Jesus tell us should be the natural outflow of someone who believes that God could be trusted and that he has our best interest in mind? If, the, if you are a person who believes everything we just read in Matthew 6, 25 to 32, then what does that person look like? We don't have to wonder. Jesus tells us this is what this person looks like. In verse 33, it says this, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be provided for you. If you grew up in church, <laughs> you might have heard the, this before. You may have even sung it in church, right? Seek first the kingdom of God. Some of you, there it is. And his what? Righteousness. And and all these things shall be added unto you. And then we go, what? Hallelujah, hallelujah. That was so nice. Good job. Now, some of you have heard this story, but it's a good one, and I'll share it. Many years ago, I was a group of friends who all graduated from uh, the same Bible college that I went to, and honestly, I forget why we were all together, but at some point, we all began sharing our favorite funny moments in ministry. We had already kind of spent, you know, decade in ministry, and so we were all sharing our, you know, what pastors do. we just kind of like, what are your funny moments? And uh, one of my friends was an associate pastor of a large Pentecostal church here in the Twin Cities uh, that I used to serve at, and he told us about one of the most memorable midweek services, and unlike Sunday services, which look pretty much like every other kind of church, the Wednesday night service was primarily attended by people who were Christians, and they often had extended times of worship and prayer. And at these services, it was very common for someone during the middle of worship or prayer to kind of speak out really loud and, and practice what is known in Pentecostal circles as giving a word of knowledge. And this was actually a really for some people like that sounds really weird. I, I get it, that might seem really weird, but when practiced in the guidelines of 1 Corinthians chapter 14, this is usually a sharing of something literally from God's word that he that he or she feels God is like wanting to encourage or exhort the congregation within and actually, uh, and I and I grew up in this background. It was very sweet, and many times the Lord spoke powerfully, and we were like, "Oh my goodness, <laughs> that's the word that God wants to speak to us." Now, this person, during uh, as he tells the story, you know, stood up and everyone's listening, and everyone's you know, the posture of prayer and just listening, and as one minute turned to two, two minutes turned to three. Three turned to four. Four turned to five. All of a sudden, the eyes were opening, and pastors were looking at each other. And pastor was looking at the worship leader and was like, that means play a song now. I think we're going to be done now. And, as, and, as, and then he tells a story as the worship leader was about ready to kind of start up a song to kind of politely drown out this person that, who had gone on and on and on. He said this person just stopped in the middle of what they were saying and went, oh, man, I'm in the flesh. they just sat right down. (laughs) Now, I think if you're someone who has decided to follow Christ, seeking first the kingdom of God is not something you disagree with. In fact, many of us genuinely believe that the trajectory of our life, for the most part, is seeking first the kingdom of God. The problem is that even in our pursuits of engaging in a life led by God's Spirit, sometimes we realize that we are not being motivated by God's Spirit, but instead we're like, oh shoot, I'm in the flesh. This is why the Apostle Paul wrote this to the people he led to Christ and pastored in a city called Corinth when he wrote this. Second Corinthians 5, 14 and 15, he said, for the love of Christ compels us since we have reached this conclusion. What is that conclusion? That one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all so that those who live should, listen, no longer live for themselves but for the one who died for them and was raised. I love what one pastor and seminary professor had to say about this passage of Scripture that I just read to you. Funny enough, it's actually a book on how to have a God-honoring marriage. He writes this, he says this. The Apostle Paul summarizes here what sin does to all of us. Sin turns us in on ourselves. Sin makes us shrink our lives to the narrow confines of our little self-defined world. Sin causes us to shrink our focus, motivation, and concern to the size of our own wants, needs, and feelings. Sin causes all of us to be way too self-aware and self-important. Sin causes us to be offended, by most, uh, to be offended most by offenses against us and to be concerned for what concerns us. Sin causes us to dream selfish dreams and to plan self oriented plans. Because of sin, we really do love us and we have a wonderful plan for our lives. If you were here a few weeks ago, or maybe you watched the podcast, you'll remember that I said that I believe with all my heart that God is asking me to lead our church into a season of true dependence and reliance on God. And while the single takeaway from that message was that we need to be people who simply ask God for His Holy Spirit to empower us and fill us, I wanted to take our cues from Jesus today on what it means to seek the Lord in hopes that it would inspire you as it's inspiring me on the journey towards increasingly submitting all of life to Jesus as Master and Savior. So in these last few minutes, would you entreat me with an opportunity to speak straight from my heart how I think we could put Jesus' words into practice so that we, so that you, so that me truly are increasingly submitting our lives to Jesus as Master and Savior day after day after day? So, at the time I have left, I want to look at this, these three words. What does it mean to ask? What does it mean? To knock. What does it mean to seek? Or seek and knock. The order doesn't really matter. Most of you know what it means to ask, right? That it means to request of something. But when Jesus is referring to asking, He is telling us to remind ourselves that God is worth our ask because He is sovereign. God is powerful. Do you need to hear that today? And God is... Is able, as Gary said last week, it's taking the position of a child that is reliant on God. Ask, and it will be given to you. While asking God for things is probably not an issue for some of you, the question I want to ask is this: When was the last time you chose to remind yourself and trust? In the fact that God is sovereign, that God is powerful, and that God is able. When you look at your situations, when did you go, yes, but God, you are sovereign. You are powerful, and you are able. Ask, and it shall be given to you. And what is the context we find ourselves asking God to be sovereign? What is that context? Very simple. What is, what is that context we usually find ourselves going, dear Jesus, please. That's what? Usually prayer, right? Prayer is where we engage with our Lord and pray as Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 6. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Prayer is the admission that there are things that can only be accomplished with God's help. As Jesus taught his disciples when they asked him why they couldn't drive out a demon that was possessing a man's son, he said to them, that kind can only come out by what? Prayer. Jesus was alluding to the fact that there are some things in this life that we will never see, that we will never accomplish. There are things in this life that our life was meant to be a part of, but we will not see because we do not what? Ask. So if I wonder if sometimes the lack of meaning we feel in our life, I wonder sometimes if the lack of purpose we find as we wander to and, f- to and fro from, 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 uh, from uh, thing we do to thing we do, from task to task, I wonder sometimes if, if it has nothing to do with the fact that we're pointing our lives in the wrong direction or that we're not working hard or we're not doing the right thing. I wonder if it's simply because we just have failed to go God, because you're sovereign, because you're powerful, because you're able, I ask you. Jesus also tells us to seek. What does that mean? Now, it should be mentioned that even though our English translations use a singular word to kind of match the singular Greek word there, ask, seek, knock, the original language is more accurately a phrase, keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on Knocking, Jesus commands to ask, seek, and knock looks more like a reckless pursuit of God than a, you know, I, I seek God on Sundays, and you know. On the way to work, I got my worship music on. <laughs> Just to be clear, when Jesus says, seek the Lord, he's not implying that God is playing some cosmic hide and seek with us. In fact, it's the other way around. <laughs> Hebrews 11.6 tells us that seeking the Lord is more about us drawing near to God because we, listen, like Adam and Eve in the garden, often find ourselves inadvertently hiding from God because of the nakedness of our sin. So we seek not simply because God is a hiding God, but we seek God Because primarily we're a hiding people. And seeking the Lord is repurposing the rhythms of your life to know God more and to live life His way. To know God more and to live life His way. Seeking God is repurposing, taking what you're already doing and moving it in another direction to say, Hey God, I want to know you more. Hey God, I want to live life your way. Seeking the Lord is repurposing our rhythms. And how do we learn more about who God is and what He desires from our life? How do we... I wish there was some place. I really wish there was something that I could look at, I can find, and I can see what God wants from us and maybe tell us more about His character so I don't have to wonder what God's thinking all the time. I just... there's oh, The B-I-B-L-E. Oh, that's the book for... The writer of Psalms tells us what seeking the Lord looks like with clarity. Psalm 119... 10 through 11, with my whole heart I seek you. And so what does that look like? Well, let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Psalm 37, 4 says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. And so are you taking the time to be in God's word? Are you taking time to understand who he is and what he wants from you? Does the inventory of your heart's desire reflect what you are learning as you seek God in his word? Or does it look just more like your will and your way? And just in case it feels as though asking and seeking feels like a burden or a task that never seems to get done, Jesus tells us to do what? Penny. Penny. No, some of you, not big bang theory. Penny. Sorry, never mind. Keep knocking. Keep knocking. I think the Apostle Paul illustrated best when he said this in Philippians 3. My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection, oh, and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. Not that I have already reached the goal or I'm already perfect, but I take every effort to take hold, to take hold of it because I have been taken hold By Christ Jesus. Have you been taken hold of by Christ Jesus? Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forget what is behind and reaching forward towards what is ahead. I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us all who are mature think in this way. And if you think differently about it, God will reveal this also to you. That's his nice way of saying, don't be an idiot. (laughs) You've heard me say this a few weeks ago, and I promise you won't stop hearing me say this for this season of life, but the solution, season of our church's life, but the solution to the problem of why our church, as well as many other churches in America, are not seeing people come to faith in Jesus is not because our lack of attendance to gatherings or events, but because of the lack of the collected effort to be a church. That is asking, that is seeking, that is knocking. I believe that. And today, we could listen to the words of Jesus and say, not so with us, dear Father. Not so with us. So as our worship team comes to close us in a time of worship, would you join me by choosing to engage in the journey of what it means every day to ask, one, to choose to believe and trust that God is sovereign and he's powerful and he's able to pray, to seek, to repurpose your rhythm so you can increasingly grow in knowing God and submitting your life to Jesus, a.k.a. study his word. And if that feels too hard, just remember Jesus says to knock. Don't give up. I'll close with this. In the um, first six weeks of, some of you know, I I had open heart surgery. Don't know if you knew that. Uh, The first six weeks of recovery, I, I couldn't really do much. Um, But what I could do was kind of just observe, and it was very interesting when you think about the past seven, eight weeks of everything that is happening in our world, and what I've had to watch transpire in our world. And as I thought about everything that had transpired since the beginning of this year, And to be honest, the past two years, I was reminded of something I read in an old commentary that I was given as a youth pastor a dozen years ago. Uh, Arthur Pink has this commentary on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and I was just reminded of this. And if you don't know who Arthur Pink is, that's fine. He 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 was a guy who wrote a lot on the scriptures, did a lot of expositional stuff on the scriptures, but he he was alive during the time of World War II. In fact, his home in England, uh, Hove, where he was living at during World War II, was continually getting bombed, and so he had to move to Scotland, where he lived out for the rest of his life. And he shortly thereafter began this series on the Sermon on the Mount, and with fresh in his mind the threat of war and bombs being rain down upon his home, he wrote this regarding Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, specifically this passage on to ask, seek, and knock. I just want to share it with you. Even though it's written back in the 1950s, I think it still rings true today. Here's what he says. Was there ever a time when prayer for the church collectively and its members individually was more urgently needed than now. We need frequently to remind ourselves that the most striking deliverances wrought in the past for God's people are recorded chiefly as monuments of prevailing prayer. Such were the salvation of Israel at the Red Sea, wrought in response to the supplication of Moses the victory over Amalek at Rephidim, the discomfiture of the Philistines in the day of Samuel, the Ebenezer then erected was less a monument of victory over powerful enemies than of the prophet's prevailing prayer, the overthrow of the Moabites and Ammonites in the days of Jehoshaphat, the remarkable deliverance from Sennacherib, king of Assyria, such examples of Jehovah's readiness to show himself strong on behalf of those who count upon his intervention, are recorded for our encouragement. Then, ask, seek.